Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Eric Foner tells the dramatic story of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in this town hall. He traces the arc of the Reconstruction Amendments from their pre-Civil War origins to today, detailing how they helped realize the promise of equality. Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. Thank you. I'll, I'll begin with the usual question, why did you write the book, but I'll just sharpen it by asking, why a book at this moment about constitutional and legal history? Right. Well, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here, Jeffrey, it's, uh, and I commend you for the new exhibit or recently opened exhibit downstairs, which uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to see. It really covers a heck of a lot of ground on the, the constitutional history and the broader history of the Civil War Reconstruction era. So. Um, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a, a legal scholar, I don't teach in a law school, I've almost never been in a court in my life, I'm law abiding. Um, uh, some of my good friends are lawyers, but that's different. Um, so why did I write something which is sort of legal history? Well, um, I've long been interested, as you said, in the Reconstruction period, and at a certain point I uh, decided to, I wondered how, the writing of historians like me and many others affected Supreme Court and other court decisions about interpreting uh, the constitutional amendments and laws passed during Reconstruction. And you can search pretty quickly now online for this kind of thing. And I discovered to my astonishment that the, what we call the Dunning School, the old traditional view of Reconstruction that I learned in high school in Long Island, New York, not Mississippi, you know, this was everywhere. Many of you probably also learned it in high school, which was that Reconstruction was the lowest point in the whole history of American democracy, a period of misgovernment, of corruption, uh, caused by the misguided decision to give the right to vote to African-American men on the grounds that black people just simply could not uh, exercise the right to vote intelligently. Um, the Dunning School was produced by scholars, including William Dunning at Columbia, my long ago predecessor there, and a whole series of followers. And it was the dominant view of that period for a long, long time. But I was, and, but it lately, it, it was really rejected. Today, the racism of it is completely rejected. And historians see Reconstruction today, as you will see downstairs, as a moment of real hope and possibility for the nation, the first effort to create an interracial democracy in this country, um, and that the tragedy was not that Reconstruction was attempted, but that it failed. And that the, se the second, the, the civil rights era is sometimes called the second Reconstruction. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I saw that this older view of Reconstruction was embedded in Supreme Court opinions way into the 1960s, even the 1970s. And that led me to start then moving and saying, well, what is the effect of, um, of this? You know, if you have this negative view of Reconstruction, you think it's a period of vindictiveness and corruption, you're not going to take a broad, expansive view of how these uh, amendments ought to be uh, interpreted. Uh, so that sort of got me into this question of, of Supreme Court jurisprudence. And then to do that, you have to go back and ask the question, well, what were the people trying to accomplish who rewrote the Constitution in 18, between 1865 and 1870? You notice, I didn't say what was their original intent. That's a legal concept. I don't happen to approve of it. I think there is never a single original intent in any significant document. Um, and whether the court should base its opinions on original intent, that's a political judicial issue. That's not for historians to worry about so much. But uh, what did they try to accomplish? That's how I put it. And um, uh, you know, I came to the conclusion that there's a heck of a lot more potential in the Reconstruction amendments that has ever really been tapped uh, by the Supreme Court, particularly on racial issues. You have this irony that these amendments, particularly the 14th, have been expanded enormously 
to cover the rights of all sorts of people who were not being discussed in Reconstruction, such as the gay marriage decision that wasn't on the minds of Congress in 1866. But what I feel is a very constrained use in terms of race. So that's what got me interested, just seeing how history affects court decisions and to the extent to which judges actually are up on what historians are saying about these key periods in our history. Well, you may not be uh, a fan of a jurisprudence of original understanding, but the book, I think, will be tremendously influential with the justices who are devoted to original understanding, and that's why it's so significant. What I would like to do in our time together is to run through each of the amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, and really go into some detail about what its purposes were and what the competing drafts and arguments were so that our friends mm -hmm. understand it. And by the end of our hour, we will uh, spread a lot of constitutional light. So let's begin with the 13th Amendment, with abolish, which abolished slavery. Uh, you know, friends, that down in the exhibit downstairs and also online on the Interactive Constitution, you can find the early drafts of all of these amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So after the show, you can go home and look at the drafts that we're going to be discussing and read the language in your own words. But for the 13th Amendment, um, there was a broader draft proposed by Charles Sumner that would have guaranteed equal protection. And Sumner said equality of rights is the first of rights. But the final draft was much narrower and prohibited slavery or involuntary servitude using language from the Northwest Ordinance. Right. So just take us through that right. debate. What were the broad drafts? What were the narrow drafts? And how right. did they end up with the language that they did? Well, Sumner, you know, the 13th Amendment, uh, contrary to what you may have seen in a uh, movie some years ago about Lincoln, uh, did not originate with Abraham Lincoln. It originated with the Women's Loyal National League, which were feminists, as, uh, Stanton, Anthony, and others, who circulated who presented hundreds of thousands of petitions to uh, Congress in 1864, I mean signatures on petitions, asking for an amendment abolishing slavery. Now, Lincoln had already declared, you know, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but that exempted almost 800,000 slaves, the ones in the border states and some within the Confederacy. It did not fully abolish the institution of slavery in the United States. Well, uh, why not? Tell, tell the well, way. there were 800,000 people it didn't apply to, and moreover, there was all this, you know, freeing people is not the same thing as abolishing slavery. The slavery is created by state law. And if you don't abrogate those state laws or repeal them, the structure of slavery still exists, even if a whole lot of slaves have been freed. Uh, so the, the Emancipation Proclamation was a critical document of American history, but more was needed. Now, Sumner, <laughs> when those petitions came, Sumner introduced a 13th Amendment Ba he borrowed it from the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen from the French Revolution. All persons are, create, are equal, therefore there cannot be slavery. In other words, slavery is a subset of the whole question of equality. Um, uh, but his colleagues and, uh, didn't like French language. They said, what are you giving us this French stuff, Sumner? We want good old Anglo-Saxon language. And they took it from the Northwest Ordinance where the la where of Jefferson. And, and if, the thing is, the Republican Party in their anti-slavery uh, campaigns before and during the Civil War had often quoted the Northwest Ordinance to try to prove that the founders actually were against slavery. The Northwest Ordinance barred slavery in what they call the Old Northwest, Ohio, and Illinois, Indiana, etc. The language came from Jefferson. This proved, quote unquote, that the founders opposed slavery. Obviously, the founders of slavery is a little more complicated than that. Um, so Sumner's draft was pushed out, and the, the I don't have my constitution right with me, but the, 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 the we can get you've got it online. Okay. The interactive constitution. We've got this incredible okay. app you, with all of the Anybody graphs. can find yes. it on, on their can, phone. They can, a constitution in every pocket. But we do need the language, so I'm going to get but, it. But, uh, you know, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, it's, it shall exist in the United States. Now, one of the interesting things, this is the first time the word slavery is actually in the Constitution. The, pre, the original Constitution protected slavery, but used circumlocutions. It did not mention specific, it said, you know, other persons or persons held to labor, that kind of thing. Except 
um, as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. How right. did that language play out? Well, th that comes from Jefferson's land ordinance of 1784. Now, that's a, that, that phrase, the criminal exemption, which was a terrible loophole because it opened the door later to this mass system of convict labor, which southern states implemented in the 1880s and 1890s, that prisoners can be put to involuntary labor. Um, and, um, you know, this was mostly black prisoners in the South, and it was a terribly exploitative, the convict lease system was a terribly exploitative system. Where did that come from? Historians have paid almost no attention to it until lately, because now with mass incarceration as a you know, major issue, people are looking at prisons and prisons labor. Well, Jeff, when I was writing, I said, well, why the heck did Jefferson put that in his land ordinance, that exemption? I called up two good friends who are scholars of Jefferson, Peter Oniff, who, who went to graduate school with me, uh, Alan Taylor, I said, why did Jefferson put that language? Both of them gave me the same answer. I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the state of the scholarship right now. <laughs> you know, it may be something as simple as that Jefferson thought labor was good for your character and it would help in rehabilitating prisoners, or that he was a prison reformer and he thought labor was better than whipping or, you know, or long-term solitary confinement or other barbaric uh, pr uh, punishments that prisoners were, uh, uh, you know, subjected to. But um, it became so familiar, that language, it was boilerplate by the time of the 13th Amendment. It was in the constitutions of many northern states that abolished slavery. It was in the Wilmot Proviso that tried to bar slavery. In, in the Mexican session. It was just familiar language. And the Republicans of Congress said, we want, abolishing slavery in the Constitution is a radical thing to do, but we're gonna do it through familiar language so that people find it less jarring. Um, but the problem with that is they put in this language which created this giant loophole to the you know, severe exploitation of the labor of prisoners. And Sumner warned, why include this language about uh, yeah. conviction? It can do no good and may introduce mischief. And tell us what happened afterward when the southern states introduced the black codes, allowing people to be essentially re-enslaved re well, by, the, by the, dubious means. The, soon after the Congress adopted the 13th Amendment, President you know, Lincoln is then assassinated and President Andrew Johnson uh, succeeds. Johnson's in the news nowadays because he was the first president to be impeached, as you well know. I used to think that Johnson was the worst president in American history. <laughs> on a, a non-partisan non basis. Right, on a non, I just say there are other contenders out there, that's yes. all. Good, oh, but, that's a nice thing. Nice you know, thing. that's yeah. all, that's, it's a matter of opinion. <laughs> but everyone understands Johnson was a complete and utter failure as president. He was deeply racist, he was intransigent, he didn't know how to work with Congress, he had no sense of public sentiment, he couldn't have cared less about the fate of the former slaves. And he set up these governments in the South in late 1865, which actually did begin passing these laws, you know, making like vagrancy, not having a job, a criminal, uh, you know, a, a criminal act for blacks, and um, then they could be literally uh, auctioned off if to, and to someone to work who would pay the for. So that loophole became, uh, you know, important early on. Now, very quickly, those laws actually don't go into effect because Congress passes the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which pretty much abrogates them. But, um, but yeah, so sometimes unintended consequences are as important as the original intent. Nobody intended the 13th Amendment to open the door to mass incarceration. Tell, tell us about the ratification debates over the 13th Amendment. We know from the movie that it was kind yeah, of close. Yeah, it was tough, yeah. And what uh, brought it over the edge, and, and was there any dispute about what it was supposed to achieve? Was it only supposed to end chattel slavery? Well, that was the debate. to do more? What does it mean to abolish slavery? What exactly is being abolished? Clearly, men and women and children can no longer be considered legal property, bought and sold. But slavery in the United States was a giant institution. It was a political institution. It was an economic institution. It was a race relations institution. 
What about the racism that is essential to American slavery? Was that also being abolished? What was going to be the status of these four million people who are declared free? This 13th Amendment doesn't tell us, right? Are they citizens? Are they equal? Will they have political rights? So the 13th Amendment, as many people said at the time, solves one question, but opens up a whole series of other questions. And those are the questions that Reconstruction focuses on, the status of the four million former slaves within American society. Unlike the 14th and 15th Amendments, the 13th has no state action requirement. It simply right. says slavery shall not exist and Congress shall have the power to enforce this. Uh, could the amendment, the amendment has not been invoked much in recent times. There was the almost Jones yeah, case, which almost said never. that, uh, could, could it be in, uh, invoked more broadly and what kind of uh, forms of racism might it be invoked against? Well, today? yeah, I mean, there, there is a whole cadre of law professors who want to reinvigorate. There's very, very little uh, jurisprudence about the 13th Amendment. Uh, in 1968, I think it was, uh, in, the case of, uh, in a case about the Open Housing Act, the Supreme Court said, yes, this is uh, constitutional because uh, housing discrimination is a badge of slavery or a legacy of slavery, and therefore Congress has a right to, um, to legislate against it. But nothing came of that. There's never been another decision saying, well, let us say, for example, you know, in 1864, Senator Howard, very important figure in this whole period, listed all the rights that slavery takes away from you, the right to marry, the right to an education, obviously the right to compete in the labor market. Well, does the abolishment of slavery then give you those rights? Can Congress enforce? What about, you know, I just suggested, what about the right to an education as a national right? flowing from the abolition of slavery. If you're abolishing slavery, aren't you also abolishing the deprivation of black people of education? You know, as I say, I'm not a judge, I'm not a lawyer, um, but it is important to note that, as you said, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments all have a final clause, Congress shall be, have the power to enforce this amendment. In other words, it wasn't just a one-stop thing. It wasn't, okay, it's ratified. It's an ongoing process. Congress is empowered to see what will be necessary as time goes on to make sure that these amendments are actually, you know, put into effect. So, you know, uh, there are people who say abortion rights should be based on the 13th Amendment, that, that, the, that, that being forced to bear a child against your will is a form of involuntary servitude. I don't expect the Supreme Court to adopt that view anytime soon. but. Um, you know, there are uh, 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 peonage laws, as you know, were overturned in the early 20th century under the 13th Amendment. So, uh, you know, I, I think there is, there are grounds, if there were a different Supreme Court, to think about ways in which the abolition of slavery opens the door to a more vigorous assertion of uh, people's rights. One of the many powerful contributions of this book is you note that African Americans during the debates over ratification wanted to interpret the amendments more broadly, and you say that nearly all the black conventions north and south over the 13th Amendment demanded the right to vote as an essential, inseparable element of self-government. As always, they invoked the Declaration of Independence. Tell us about the role of declaration language in those conventions and how those conventions interpreted the declaration. To well, speak. it's interesting that, you know, before the Civil War, there were all these black convention, political conventions called colored conventions. Actually, and this goes to the 14th, they were called conventions of colored citizens. That may seem just sort of bland, but in fact, black people were not considered citizens by, in many ways before the Civil War. Certainly that's what Dred Scott decision said. They were claiming the right to citizenship by calling them conventions of colored citizens. But their view of rights that Many black groups said, no, you know, we now should have the right to vote. That's what it means to be a free person in America, at least a man. No women could vote at that time. Um, this, this amendment really gives us the right to vote. Now, most Republicans in Congress said it. No, it didn't. But I argue in this book that we need to look outside of Congress. We need to look outside of the courts to figure out what Americans of all kinds, of all backgrounds, 
thought about. It was a sort of a popular constitutionalism at that time. People were actually debating constitutional amendments in their homes, in their churches, in their meetings. Uh, a very unique moment in American history. The Constitution isn't rewritten all that often. So um, you've got to look at those people, too, if you want to figure out what um, what was intended or what was they were trying to uh, to accomplish so and the black voice is rarely heard in legal scholarship about uh, the 13th 14th and 15th amendments because there were no african americans in congress when the 13th or 14th amendment was debated so they just don't appear but they're out there and they're debating and they're helping to set the political uh, the political agenda so um you know, one of the arguments of this book is just we've got to get out more. <laughs> we've got to get out more if we're studying things. Don't just stay inside the beltway. These conventions of African Americans are extraordinary. Where are the records of them? Did they take formal votes? And were they, did they have different legal status for the three amendments? Uh, well, these were private conventions. I mean, these were just conventions uh, organized with delegates sent from different parts. I mean, they did. They published their proceedings. There's even now a colored conventions website, which has dozens and dozens of the records. A lot of these are hard to find. You know, the pamphlets were published, but not a lot. But now there's many of them online in the colored conventions uh, website. Um, and most of the black political leaders of Reconstruction were very active in, you know, whether Frederick Douglass or some of the black congressmen and senators, et cetera. So this is a source of, but you asked about the Declaration of Independence. Yes. Before the Civil War, these conventions rested their claims on the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. It was hard to use the, the original Constitution to claim the basic rights of African Americans, or at least there were many abolitionists who said, you know, the Constitution is pro-slavery, like William Lloyd Garrison. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Once you get the Civil War and then the beginning of the rewriting of the Constitution, suddenly the Constitution becomes central to these conventions. They want their rights now guaranteed in the Constitution, 13, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So the Constitution comes to play a much bigger role in African American sort of public culture than it had before the Civil War when they, you know, had to face up to the fact that the Constitution included clauses protecting the institution of slavery. Okay, now we're going to move from the 13th to the 14th, and the transition is so important. The 13th is passed, and soon, as you note, the southern states passed the Black Codes, denying African Americans the right to sue and be sued, to make and enforce contracts, to engage in the basic privileges or immunities or civil rights of citizenship. Congress, as you say, passes the Civil Rights Act of 1866, guaranteeing those rights. President Johnson vetoes it. The first significant override of a veto in American history, uh, Congress repasses it. Over his veto, and then tell us and take us now into the debate over the 14th Amendment. It was drafted primarily by John Bingham. Uh, the most avid proponents want to guarantee voting rights, but yeah. they don't have the votes for that. So what the 14th Amendment the the 14th is ultra-complicated. Uh, and for those who think there is a single original intent, it's impossible. I mean, the, the, the language was written and rewritten and rewritten. There were votes in the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, eight to seven votes on changing the language. Do we know what the original intent of those eight guys was? No. Um, but overall, you can say they, what they were trying, and also there were parts of the, of the 14th Amendment we don't have to deal with right now, like that the Confederate debt will never be repaid and that Southerners will never get um, uh, compensation for their slaves. Some of them were still trying to get money for the loss of their slave property. 14th Amendment says no, forget about that. Um, there's a convoluted second clause of, which doesn't give anyone the right to vote, but basically says if any men, it, it introduces the word male for the first time into the Constitution to the great annoyance of the women's rights movement. If any men are denied the right to vote, a state will lose representation in Congress in proportion. So Mississippi is, let's say, 50% black, 50% white. If black men can't vote, they're going to lose 50% of their members of Congress. By the way, never enforced. I have, I, I'd like you to join my club. I'm starting a club to enforce the second clause of the <laughs> second section of the 14th Amendment because there are now states that have, with their voter suppression laws, 
that should lose a congressman if, the, if, that, if that clause was going to be enforced. And it's supposed to be automatic. It says they shall. It's not like anyone is supposed to debate this, but it has never been enforced. Texas is the one with the most, because they have so many congressmen, uh, 30 or so. If only 3% of the, of the citizens of Texas are denied the right to vote, they should lose a congressman. Who would enforce it, Congress or the courts? It would have to be Congress itself, presumably, since Congress is the judge of the qualifications of its own members, right? But anyway, that's in there. It's a convoluted thing, never enforced. It doesn't give black men the right to vote, but it sort of encourages the southern states to do so. But the core is the first section, Bingham, as you say, of Ohio. Now, you know, another reason I wrote this book is these people who wrote the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are not widely known. You know, Henry Wilson, James Ashley, John Bingham is a key figure in the history of our Constitution. And yet, how many people have heard of John Bingham? You can go to John Bingham's hometown in Ohio, and there's no, rec there's no commemoration of John Bingham. The only statute of John Bingham near uh, the hometown uh, said that he was an ambassador, but doesn't even note that he was the framer of the 14th Right, Amendment. right, he was an ambassador, right. Yes. So uh, they need to be remembered as architects of our democracy. You That's know? what we're doing downstairs in this right, gallery. Right, absolutely. Now, but the, so the, what is, the first section in its final form, number one says, anybody born in the United States is a citizen, except for those, you know, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Is we'll, we'll read it. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it overturns Dred Scott. Black people are now citizens, just like anyone else. Um, it, 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 you know, the original Constitution mentions citizens about a dozen times, but never actually exactly defines who is a citizen. And even though the general assumption before the Civil War was, yeah, if you're born in the United States, you're a citizen, not black people. Many states did not recognize blacks as citizens. And then, as I said, nationally, the Supreme Court and Dred Scott said, no, citizenship is only for whites. So you have a, a birthright principle, but with a racial principle attached to it. Now you get rid. So this is a fundamental thing. Citizenship is severed from race. Citizenship is severed from any other thing. Religion, ethnicity, national origin, status of the parents. This is a major you know, statement of principle of, of what it is to be an American. Anybody can be a good American citizen. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, etc. Now, it's controversial today. There are people who want to, to you know, children born to women who are uh, undocumented immigrants. Are they citizens? Absolutely. The language, I say absolutely, the language is clear. The status of the parents does not affect the citizenship status of the child. Your parents can be bank robbers. I'm not accusing your parents of being bankrupt, but your mom isn't. All right. <laughs> uh, that doesn't affect whether the children are citizens or not. They can be in jail, but there's all right. Then it goes on to say all these citizens that no state can deny to any of these citizens can abridge the privileges or immunities of American citizens. Right. So let's read that language and uh, ask what that means. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are the privileges or immunities of citizens of Nobody the United States? Nobody knows. Uh, and there was no <laughs> definite, in fact, in the debates in Congress, they, you know, one of them said, you know, it would be tedious to list all these. Now, Bingham, Bingham had a clear idea. He said, those are the liberties protected in the Bill of Rights. Bingham said, what this clause will do is require the states to respect the Bill of Rights. Before the Civil War, the prohibitions in the Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government, right? What are the first words of the First Amendment? Congress shall pay, make no law. Congress, freedom of speech. Try to give a speech against slavery in South Carolina. You can't. There's a law against it. Well, doesn't that affect, isn't that violate the First Amendment? No, because the First Amendment's about the federal government. But now, Bingham says, the, now the states are going to have to abide by all of that. And, you know, Republicans had, had viewed slavery not only as a 
complete denial of the basic rights of humanity to blacks, but as a threat to the liberties of white people also. Freedom of the press didn't exist in the South. Freedom of speech didn't really exist in the South in many ways. And so, this is, so that's what Bingham thought. But there were others who said, no, that, there are other rights. Some people said voting is a privilege of citizenship. Black people said that, that said this should give us the right to vote because it's a privilege of American citizenship. Um, nobody knew. The, this would have to be worked out in the future by the courts and the Congress. Can, can I ask a question on that because it's so important? Bingham introduced one draft, which you can see online, right. that would have protected political rights as right. well as civil rights. But right. the final draft that passed, lots of people Doesn't. said privileges or immunities only include civil rights but not political or social rights. Tell us about well, that it does, formal it, There was a tradition of sharp distinctions among different kinds of rights. Political rights, the right to vote. But you can be a citizen and not have that. Women were citizens, but they couldn't vote. That's up to the states to determine who votes, at least before the Civil War. Civil rights, you mentioned a lot of them a minute ago. Those are the rights that really make it possible to, com to compete in the labor market. You know, the right to sign contracts, sue and be sued, testify in court, have basic equality before the law. Civil rights, not, they don't include the right to vote, but certainly Republicans by this time thought blacks ought to have all of those civil rights. That's what the Civil Rights Act of 1866 says. It lists all these civil rights. It says you can't, that, it, the language is interesting. Everybody, ha, all these citizens have to enjoy these civil rights the same as enjoyed by white persons. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Before the Civil War, the word white in laws was a boundary, a barrier. Only white people can vote. It's exclusion. Now they use whiteness as a baseline. If white people enjoy this right, that right, everybody else has to enjoy it too. So it's an amazing, you know, what's going on here is a complete rewriting of the legal structure of the United States it, it, in terms of race. One of the things I used to, I tell my students, you know, what they are trying to, you want to know their original intent? The, the intent is what we would call today regime change. <laughs> they are trying to change a regime based on slavery into a regime based on freedom. That's what they are trying to do in Reconstruction, in the laws, in the amendments, et cetera. Wow. And then the 14th Amendment, the yes, Bingham the goes on to say, uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, you know it by heart, of course, but no state shall make or enforce, oh, we did privileges immunities. The next one is, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Notice, that language has shifted from citizen to person. You cannot deprive, you cannot abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens, but no, the state cannot deny any person. That includes immigrants, that includes aliens. People who are not citizens but are here. Bingham was very clear about that. We, this, these principles apply to everybody in the United States, regardless of what their citizenship status. Life, liberty, and property. You cannot be denied that without due process of law. Or, or enforce any law that... Shall nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Equal protection is something of a term of art. What does it equal mean? Equal protection. This is the key phrase in the 14th Amendment. The, the original Constitution says nothing about equality among citizens. It does mention that uh, it uses the word equal when it says, well, what happens if candidates get an equal number of electoral votes? All right, that's not what we mean by... This puts the concept of equality into the Constitution for the first time. And that is what has made the 14th Amendment in the 20th century this, tr this vehicle for a tremendous expansion of Americans' rights. The so-called rights revolution of the 60s, the Warren Court. So many um, equality-based decisions are 14th Amendment decisions. And, and many of them have nothing to do with race, you know, like Baker v. Carr, right? One man, one vote. That's a 14th Amendment decision. As I mentioned, the gay marriage decision is a 14th Amendment decision. Justice Kennedy, very clear about that. Um, uh, privacy, abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, 14th Amendment. That's depriving somebody of their liberty without due process of law, uh, the bans on abortion. 
Um, is all sorts of important Supreme Court decisions are, uh, in the last, you know, 50 years have been based on, or 60 years, on based on the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So uh, this really that really changes what the Constitution is. Did, did the framers have a more narrow understanding in mind, protection of the law, the sense that mobs can't attack yeah. African-Americans but not white people and the police have to protect them? Or was <laughs> well, it the notion of equal of protection, again, it's, you know, Bingham and many of these others that I've mentioned, Ashley, Wilson, Sumner, they are veterans of the anti-slavery movement. They had been discussing these things a lot before the Civil War. They had a plan in place if slavery was ever abolished. Equal protection meant two things. It meant that the law has to apply equally to everybody, so you can't have these black codes that the Southerners had just for blacks. But also, at a time of significant violence against blacks in the South, you know, terrorism, the Ku Klux Klan, etc., uh, equal protection suggests that the government has to offer you protection, you, that the government cannot just allow mobs or night riders to go around assaulting Amer you know, what, what kind of citizenship is this if you are at the mercy of violent assault all the time? So equal protection has sort of two meanings, or probably even more. Uh, again, it's, these are general principles. The Civil Rights Act, as you mentioned, listed specific rights. 14th Amendment doesn't do that. General principles, equal protection, due process, privileges and immunities. It left it to future Congresses to work out what exactly those mean. But that this, the two meanings you mentioned, you can't have formally discriminatory laws like the Black Codes, right. and you have to have equal administration of the existing laws, still seems more narrow than a sweeping guarantee of equality to be interpreted Well, that's why I think the Privileges and Immunities Clause ought to be resurrected. Uh, and, you know, it was basically killed by the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse case in 1873, Slaughterhouse cases. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, as I say, I think if you keep this notion of regime change in mind, they're trying, uh, or what Thaddeus Stevens said, you know, we're trying to create a perfect republic for the first time. Now, he also went on to say, we're not going to be able to do that because nothing in this world is perfect. We live among men, not among angels, so we will take the best we can do. But uh, they really thought this was the opportunity to purge the, the laws and the Constitution of the legacy of slavery. And that would be a long process. They, they didn't think the process ended when they passed these amendments. I have here, uh, you, you have here, the uh, 1863 pamphlet, Equal Protection of the Law, denouncing the failure of the police to protect right. blacks from mob assault. Tell us about the debate over ratification of the 14th Amendment. You talk about the Reconstruction Act of 1867, which required that the new reformulated governments ratify the 14th Amendment as a condition of being readmitted to the Union. Right. Does that make the ratification of the 14th Amendment illegal, just like the original Constitution? People have claimed that. The southern states went to court in the late 19th century and asked the Supreme Court to say the 14th Amendment was not ratified properly. The Supreme Court ran as fast as they could away from that case. They're not going to abrogate a clause, a section of the Constitution. Um, so they just said, that's a political question. That's not, a you know, it's ratified. There's nothing we can do about it now. But it, getting it ratified was not easy. First of all, now, the southern states were not represented in Congress, except for Tennessee, which had sort of snuck back in. But um, that is what enabled Republicans to have a two-thirds majority in Congress. Johnson had created these all-white governments, so you have this weird thing in 1866. Congress passes the 14th Amendment, but they say the, the three quarters of the states that have to ratify includes the southern states, which means you're going to need at least a few southern states to ratify. But Johnson's governments, which are all white, all rejected it, except for Tennessee. That's how they got back in. But they all rejected almost sometimes unanimously the legislature of Louisiana and Mississippi unanimously, that's unheard of in a, you know, a constitutional amendment proposed unanimously rejected. Why? Because it took power away from the states to define the rights of citizens, because it introduced the notion of equality of blacks and whites in the legal system, in the constitutional system, and they were just completely adamant against that. They were adamant 
on racial grounds and also on federalism grounds. This was a fundamental shift of power from the states to the national government. Um, and, um, and, you know, as I mentioned, each of the three amendments ends with this clause, Congress shall have the power to enforce. Just look at the difference. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. That restricts Congress. Now you have the more Congress shall have the power. Now the states are restricted, but Congress is empowered. So the, the Southern governments of Johnson just rejected it. And uh, Congress got so fed up, they abolished those governments. And they said, all right, we need new governments in the South. And now black men are going to vote for the first time. So you now get what we call radical reconstruction, new biracial governments in the South, and they now ratify the 14th Amendment as they're required to do. But now you get a black voice. You get blacks in these, in these state conventions saying what they think the uh, 14th Amendment is all about. And what do they say? They, have a, they say it means the right to vote. They say it means what they call public rights, the right to uh, access to you know, equal treatment in the public sphere by businesses, by hotels, by transportation companies. You know, all the things that, we, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 dealt with, but they said that is now, and again, it was these privileges and immunities. It is a privilege of American citizenship to be treated equally in the public sphere. They introduced this notion of public rights to go along with civil rights, political rights, social rights, et cetera. And those are the rights that are protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which right. forbids discrimination in public accommodations, which the Supreme Court strikes down over Harlan's dissent, where he invokes these public rights as yeah, being constitutionally Yeah, exactly. Rooted. The Supreme Court strikes that down in 1883 in the civil rights cases uh, on the grounds that the 14th Amendment only prohibits state action, right? Private discrimination is not covered. So, yeah, if the state passes a law, that's one thing. But if a, move, a theater, I was about to say movie theater, but I guess <laughs> they didn't have movies back then. Uh, if an if a, if a opera house, one of them came out of an opera house in New York City, one of the civil rights cases. Wow. Ironically, the, uh, the, the, a black guy wanted to buy a ticket to an opera house in New York to see an opera based on a Victor Hugo story about a slave who impersonates his owner in some way played by, this is a, played by Edwin Booth, the brother of Lincoln's assassin. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the Opera House said, no, no blacks allowed. Mm -hmm. And the guy sued under the Civil Rights Act of 1875, uh, which gave, called for damages in that case. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, state action. Private discrimination is not covered by the 14th Amendment. That's so moving and so <laughs> outrageous right. and then the conventions themselves would have forbidden it and Harlan writes his dissent as you note in your book with the pen that Chief Justice Taney used to write the Dred Scott decision. Right. Professor, tell that story because it's... Yeah, that his, he, he had a kind of writer's block writing his dissent and finally his wife somehow had obtained the inkwell and, and pen that Justice Tawney used to write Dred Scott. And she put it on his desk, and that inspired him to use the same pen to try to erase some of the legacy of Justice Tawney. It's extraordinary. A great little story, yeah. Okay, we have 10 minutes. We've got great questions, but we've got to do the 15th Amendment. All it's right. really important that we put it on the table. So the 14th passes, but it still doesn't protect voting rights. Now, there is a dis debate between a broad and narrow 15th, right. you say. The broad would have made voting rights the same everywhere. The narrower one only would have forbade formal discrimination on the basis of race. The narrow one passed with the consequence that states were able to subvert the right to vote with poll taxes and literacy right. tests. Tell us that story of the broad versus the narrow. Yeah, and, and well, uh, or you could say the positive versus the negative amendment. A the radicals wanted a positive amendment. All now, unfortunately, and this led to a big fight, that nobody, they were not willing to give women the right to vote. So all male citizens, 21 years and older, have the right to vote, as simple as that. That would have solved a lot of problems going forward, right? But the fact is, states, as they even do today, each state has its own voting requirements. The Constitution only says what you cannot do. You cannot deny someone the right to vote because of race. That's the 15th Amendment. Later, you cannot deny someone the right to vote because of sex. Later, 18-year-old, you can't. Poll tax, you cannot have a poll tax. But, but it doesn't say positively who has the right to vote. And it doesn't, it doesn't bar what appear to be non-racial 
measures that actually could be used to discriminate against most blacks. Literacy tests, right? Uh, understanding clauses. When the Southern state, so the, the 15th Amendment is weaker than the radicals wanted, but it is worth noting, it, it, the notion of black men voting was a complete rejection of the sort of notion that this is a white man's government, which was dominant before the Civil War. Pennsylvania, African-Americans of Pennsylvania got the right to vote twice. Eight, 1776, Pennsylvania Constitution had no racial barrier. A new constitution was adopted in 1838, adding the word white to the Pennsylvania voting requirements. Blacks in Pennsylvania, and there was a pretty large free black community here, lost the right to vote. They get it back in 1870 with the 15th Amendment. They could not vote until the 15th Amendment. And that applies, very few northern states allow blacks to vote. This applies to the whole country and enfranchises a lot of black people. And um, so it's an amazing change and it leads to, you know, as you say downstairs, something like 1,500 African-American officials elected in Reconstruction from members of the Senate and Congress all the way down to justices of the peace and school board officials. You know how many, I've looked in, you know how many African-American elected officials there were before the Civil War? I could only find two. One, and they're both justices of the peace. One in Massachusetts, Macon Allen, and um, John Langston, an abolitionist, a black abolitionist somewhere in Ohio. I think in Oberlin, a radical place. But black office holding was unheard of in American history. Suddenly, that's what I said before. This is a biracial democracy for the first time in our history. And the 15th Amendment is part of that process. We learn in the, on the interactive that uh, uh, Representative Wilson repre uh, proposed a draft that would have forbade discrimination on the basis of office holding poll taxes and literacy tests, but that failed. Why? The even the northern states wanted to keep control of their voting requirements. Um, you know, uh, Massachusetts had a literacy test at this time. Uh, Rhode Island had a test, a, a property qualification for naturalized citizens. Immigrants who came to, who got the right to vote had to earn a certain amount of, had to own property, which whites didn't. California, Oregon didn't want Chinese immigrants voting. So in a weird sort of way, other prejudices than prejudices against blacks made it impossible to pass this positive 15th Amendment. California voted against the 15th Amendment for that reason. Because they were afraid, because Chinese could not become naturalized citizens at this time, right, under the naturalization laws. But their children would be citizens. And so down the road, California, they're gonna, they will have the right to vote. California didn't want Chinese voting. So they vote, right, California and Oregon both rejected the 15th Amendment. You say there's something like seven states that might have supported the really broad positive rights amendment? And very few were, were, were willing to do that. Maybe, you know, because, uh, because the tradition of state control of voting was just too deep. Was that the biggest constitutional error the founders made, leaving voting control in the states? Uh, that was one of them. I think the Electoral College doesn't work too well either. <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, note here that there was just no, the votes weren't there. No, even the votes the were not, war. and the, unfortunately the votes were not there for women's suffrage. The women's movement wanted sex in there as well as race. You cannot deprive, deny of the right to vote because of race or sex. It didn't get passed. It led to grave recriminations by the feminist movement, a split in the feminist movement. The old abolitionist feminist alliance shattered and this was, you know, this was a major turning point in the history of reform movements in the 19th century. We're going to create a new exhibit to open in June uh, on the 19th Amendment in honor of the anniversary. What story should we tell about that fissure between the abolitionists and women's Well, I think advocates? the story is, uh, in a way, what Lucy Stone, another great feminist of this period, said, both sides perhaps are right in the sense that there was no voting majority willing to go for women's suffrage. You know, Douglas and many others said, this is the Negro's hour, by which they meant the black men. We can get black male suffrage now. We cannot get women's suffrage. So we have to be politically, you know, uh, practical. 
all right, that's a good logical argument. But Stanton and Anthony said, no, the, the brand of abolitionists, the brand name is principle. It's not pragmatism. You have been fight if, if what is politically possible had guided you, you would never have abolished slavery, you know? So this is the moment to put this principle of equal citizenship rights for women and men into the Constitution. And, and she said, the constitutional door is open. If we don't get it now, it will close. It will not reopen for 50 years. And that's exactly what it was, 1870, 1920. So it took 50 years to open that constitutional door again. What can we learn from the ratification debate over the 15th Amendment from the African-American conventions about what broader meanings of it could have? Well, to they want, the, the African-Americans wanted, as most of the men also didn't favor women's suffrage, you know, but they wanted a broad principle of suffrage rights. Uh, many, a bunch of white Republicans wanted to disenfranchise Confederates. You know, so they, they wanted to say, if you were a Confederate, you couldn't vote. But Blacks did not want that. They wanted a strong principle of universal male suffrage because they, were, they knew that down the road there would be efforts to take their vote away. Wow, I think we got through the gist of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you, you must read the book, as you can tell. I'm gonna ask you a few of these great questions and then we'll have one uh, final mm -hmm. question. And there's so many here and the question, this is a great one, they all are, are the ambiguities in the three amendments which you've pointed out uh, this evening the result of carelessness and error or by design, how do we explain the carelessness or the design? I don't think it was carelessness. I think they wanted to, in the 14th particularly, they wanted to have broad general language so that Congress, they didn't really expect the courts, you know, they say Congress shall have the right to enforce this. They didn't expect the courts to take as vigorous a, a stance in, in, in interpreting these amendments as they actually did. And in fact, Republican congressmen complained bitterly in the 1880s and 90s that the court was just undermining their accomplishment in these amendments. But um, they, they wanted to leave it open for Congress to actually put into law what were what privileged immunities were, what equal protection meant, what due process meant. Uh, so I don't think it was carelessness. I, some of the loopholes were careless. Certainly the criminal exemption in the 13th Amendment was a terrible mistake. Uh, the 15th Amendment, um, you know, as I said, they're both right. Uh, unfortunately, a positive amendment establishing the right to vote for everybody just could not pass, even in this radical moment. So they were kind of stuck with a limited amendment, um, but still a very, very important thing in our, in our history. So I don't think it's really carelessness. I think they saw Reconstruction as an ongoing project. That's one of the reasons that original intent, to my mind, is, is a problem, because you're looking at a specific moment of debate and ratification when in fact they all expected this to be a process that went on and on and on. It wasn't just over when these amendments were passed. But that does suggest that the Supreme Court decisions holding that Congress was limited to remedying only state discrimination and not uh, private discrimination are inconsistent with the original I think that's a t the state action uh, concept is a terrible one, that, but it's embedded in our jurisprudence. When the Supreme Court in, you know, upheld the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which did what the 1875 law had done before of banning private discrimination by businesses, Supreme Court did not uphold it on the basis of the 14th Amendment. They upheld it on the basis of the Commerce Clause in the original Constitution, which gives Congress the right to... That makes, in my humble opinion, the Supreme Court look ridiculous. We're old enough, not you. I'm old enough to remember people in the streets in the early 1960s being assaulted, trying to gain these civil... They weren't out there demonstrating uh, so that goods could flow freely between one state and another. No, that's not what this is about, interstate commerce. But the court was afraid to say, we have been wrong for 80 years. They never were willing to say that because precedent is so important. And as recently as the Violence Against Women Act case. They Violence Against the Women Act, case. same principle. Private action is for the states to deal with. 
state, but there are no state laws today overtly discriminating on the basis of race. Never in a single one, I'm sure. So that principle limits the 14th Amendment very severely. How, a big but great question, how have your thoughts about Reconstruction changed or evolved from your first book to the current one? <laughs> <laughs> I've written a lot of things on Reconstruction. Um, I'm not, you know, one thing about historians, we all know our fate is to be superseded, right? The rewriting of historical works goes on and on and on. And certainly uh, my book, which is 30 years old, was made a big impact, but it did not deter others from writing and even some misguided people disagreeing with some of the things <laughs> I had said. Um, but I think what's happened is the whole cast of characters of Reconstruction has expanded enormously. There, the, 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 whole, the history of women in Reconstruction, which was just in its infancy when I was writing, and certainly my book doesn't deal sufficiently with that, is now a little cottage industry. The West and Reconstruction, Native Americans in Reconstruction. In other words, the, the geography has expanded, the cast of characters, and all that I think is, is, is good, and that has affected my view of what's going on. And also the time period. Some people say Reconstruction should be considered to go all the way to 1900 when the right to vote is being taken away. That 1877, our traditional ending point, really doesn't, history doesn't end at any one moment, you know? Black people kept voting in the South for another 15 years in many states and holding office in many places. It didn't end just, it petered out over a 20 year period. And, um, you know, my book ends at, my, my book is 600 pages, and it ends in 1877. If I try to get it up to uh, 1900, forget it, you know, no one ever read the damn thing. So, uh, <laughs> we, we would. I'm happy to stop. But so, yeah, our views of Reconstruction have changed, and that has uh, affected my, you know, ways of thinking about it, too, sure. Uh, if someone's a strict constructionist or an originalist of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, who are the founders? The radical Republicans who introduced this in Congress, the state legislatures who ratified under duress, or those African-American people's conventions? Well, that is exactly the right question, and there is no single founder. There is a whole group of them, um, and... Um, you know, that's the, you know, the, the original, you can go to the debates, the debates are all online, you can find them very easily, and you can find a quotation from John Bingham, or you can find a quotation from Henry Wilson or others, and you can say, here's the original intent. But it, that is a fool's gold, you know? Um, there is no single original intent. There's a sort of constellation. All these things are compromises in a way. There are inputs from all sorts of different uh, people, both in and out of Congress. And, you know, historians don't get bogged down in this original intent thing. Lawyers, some law professors do. I think it's a, it's a misleading way of trying to figure out what was on the minds of all Americans, not just those in Congress, as the Constitution is being rewritten. Last question in this wonderful conversation. You end the book by saying, despite the Supreme Court's retreat from Reconstruction, the counterinterpretation developed in Reconstruction remains available from the second founding. If the political environment changes, there's no reason why the 13th Amendment can't be reinvigorated as a weapon against enduring inequalities rooted in slavery or the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause must remain a dead letter. Uh, what in the 21st century do you imagine the Reconstruction Amendments could well, you be know, there's an old phrase, which may or may not be correct, you know, that the, Supreme, the Constitution is what the Supreme Court says it is. Um, and uh, we may have in the future a Supreme Court with a somewhat different uh, type of point of view than we seem to have in the majority right now. And I, I, as I said, I think you've got this contradiction that in many ways, these amendments have vastly expanded the rights of all Americans, and that's to be applauded, you know? But on the other hand, when it comes to the actual legacy of slavery, racial inequality in this country, which is still a deep problem in America, I, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone can deny that. Um, these amendments have been constrained. The, the court's interpretation of them has been so narrow uh, and lately, uh, that, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more ways in which they could be used to directly address, as I said, the inequalities that are the legacy of slavery and of 100 years of Jim Crow with the acquiescence of the courts 
to really try to, uh, you know, court decisions can't change the whole society, but they can open up possibilities for congressional legislation and other things which seem to be foreclosed now. For doing more than any other American to resurrect the original <laughs> promise of the Reconstruction <laughs> Amendments, please join me in thanking Eric Foner. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Thank you.